They call it uh, dark energy. And scientists will tell you it, it makes up about uh, 70 to 75 percent of our universe. So this dark energy is a big part of the world in which we live. But here's the fascinating thing. The leading scientists of the day will tell you that nobody knows for sure what it is. <laughs> this dark energy, nobody knows for sure what it is. I mean, here's something that's real, but it's invisible. Here's something that's an essential part of the world in which we live. It permeates everything we see and know. And yet rarely do we ever talk about it. I mean, when's the last time you had a stimulating conversation with a friend of yours and you were talking about dark energy? <laughs> we rarely ever talk about it. And number two, when we do talk about it, nobody knows for sure what we're talking about. Nobody knows for sure how to explain it. It's a mystery. But though it's hard to understand, there's no denying its reality. This dark energy, everybody knows this dark energy, it is a central part, a key part of this world in which we live. Well, today I want us to jump into another mystery. We're, today we're going to talk about Jesus. What we believe about Jesus and how, think about this, there has never, there has never been another person like him. And here's why. Here's what makes him unique. He is human and he is divine. He is both fully God and fully man all at the same time. It's not, you know, for the longest time he was God. And then for a while he kind of gave that up and came to the world. And for 33 years he was just a man. And then he went back to glory and he went back to being God again. No, 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 no. He is both God and man at the same time. Fully human, fully divine, all in one person. Do I understand this? No. <laughs> and I probably never will. It's a mystery. But though it's a mystery, it's real. And unlike that topic of dark energy where you can go your whole life not knowing anything about it, and you're going to be okay. Dark energy, what in the world is that? And then you spend the rest of your days and you never think about it again, and you're going to be just fine. But that's not true about Jesus. Uh, of all the, here's the one person, of all the people that you meet in this life, here's the one person you've got to meet. You've got to know something about him. Because what you choose to believe about Jesus or what you choose not to believe is going to seriously affect who you are right now and make the greatest impact on the kind of future you're going to be able to enjoy. Whether that future is going to be something great and grand and glorious or that future is going to wind up in a disaster. It's all going to be determined by what you know. Isn't it interesting, if you were to take a magnet, a super magnet, and you were to place it above our history, the history of the past 2,000 years, and with that magnet, you pull out every trace, every hint, every scrap of anything that had to do with Jesus. I mean, over the past 2,000 years, you pull out every time his name is mentioned. You pull out every time a picture is drawn of him. You pull out every time his words are quoted. You pull out any time anybody is motivated to do something worthwhile for somebody else, and what motivated them to do that was Jesus. You pull every, every, every part of that out of our history, and what do you have left? Not much. Did you know that though Jesus himself never wrote a book yet, the Library of Congress, our Library of Congress, has more books about Jesus, 17,000 to be exact, has more, about, more books about Jesus than any other figure in history. I mean, the runner-up is Shakespeare, and there are twice as many books about Jesus as there are about him. And this interest in Jesus is not faded over time. There's a scholar at the University of Chicago who's documented this, that in the past 20 years there's been more books written about Jesus than all the previous 19th centuries combined. I mean, the interest in Jesus just keeps growing. More songs have been sung about him, more artwork has been created because of him than any other person who's ever lived. In fact, though Jesus never held a political office, I mean, way back there in the first century, he never even met a Roman emperor. And yet there's not a leader in the whole history of mankind who has more followers than Jesus. 
So whether you like him or not, whether you choose to believe him or not, there's no denying the impact that he's made upon this world over the past 2,000 years. Everybody seems to have some kind of thought, some kind of opinion about Jesus. There's no denying his cent that he is the central figure in our world. And if that be true, and it is, then don't you think it'd be wise to check him out? Hey, I need to know who is Jesus. That's why I picked this scripture today. Here in just four verses, Luke chapter 8, verses 22, 25. Here in just four verses, we see both the humanity of Jesus and the divinity of Jesus. Fully man, fully God. And it's here in these four verses, we begin to understand what does that mean for us? Let's take a look at this. Whenever you're looking at a book like this, the book of Luke, here's Luke, he's writing a book about Jesus. But whenever you're reading something like this, you need to keep in mind, why did he write this? He, he wants to tell the true story of Jesus. But what was it that motivated Luke to do this? Well, in Luke's case, he has a friend. It's a man by the name of Theophilus, and he's got all kinds of doubts. See, history tells us that there were more than 100 people over the course of the first century. There were more than 100 different people running around claiming to be the Messiah. You know, that special person picked by God, sent to the world to be our Savior. And many of these people were running around saying, I'm the one. I'm that special person. I am that Messiah. Many of those people had a huge following. And so Theophilus is thinking, well, how do I know that Jesus is right and all these other guys are wrong? How do I know that I put my hope in the right person? Is he really the one, the one that God sent to this world to be our Savior? And Luke comes along and says, Theophilus, let me help you out. I'm going to write you a book. I mean, a long book. And I'm just going to give you all the details so you can know for certain what actually happened. I'm just going to lay out all the facts, all the historical facts, so you can see who he is and what he did and why. There's no one else like him. And that's why this particular episode was included in the book. Because here's a, an event, here's a moment in time that just tells you a lot about Jesus. Let's see what we can learn. Luke chapter 8, verse 22 says, uh, One day Jesus said to his disciples, uh, Let's go to the other side of the lake. Now think about that. They're making this trip because of Jesus. This is his idea to go to the other side of the lake. So all this trouble that they're about to encounter, all this danger that they're about to, to experience, it's because of Jesus. He is the one who's leading them there. You know, it's just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego back there in the book of Daniel. Rather than save them from the fiery furnace, God decided to do it in a different way. He decides to take them through the fire. And why? Because in walking with them through that fire, and keep that in mind, there weren't just three standing in that fiery furnace. There was a fourth, the Lord himself. He walked with them. But in walking with them and taking them through the fire, God knew these three young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, now because they were going through the fire, they were going to see things about God and learn things about God they couldn't know in any other way. See, it's one thing to have the facts up here. Hey, I, I know the truth about God. I've got all the correct information. But it's something else to know it down here as well. Hey, I know he's real because I have experienced that reality in my own life. And that's exactly why Jesus is leading these disciples into a storm. He wants them to be able to give that same kind of testimony too. So the 12 disciples, they got into the boat and they set out because this is what Jesus told them to do. And as they're sailing across the Sea of Galilee, this big lake that you find up there in the northern part of Israel, as they're sailing across the Sea of Galilee, Jesus fell asleep. And while he's sleeping, here's what happens. A squall, and the word that's used here means a ferocious wind of hurricane force. In fact, Matthew, who's one of the disciples riding in the boat on this day, 
He wrote a book about Jesus too. And in his book, when he talks about this incident, he uses a Greek word, seismos. It's a word that literally means earthquake. <laughs> I want you to know this storm we went through, this was no typical storm in the Sea of Galilee. This, this was a major storm, life-threatening. It was like an earthquake on the water. We feared for our very lives. So a squall comes down in the lake like a giant eagle suddenly swooping down on its prey. Suddenly out of nowhere, this storm comes swooping down on the lake. And the result is the boat is being swamped, just flooded with water. They're going down. And get this, and they... Not just the 12 disciples, Jesus and the 12 disciples. And they were in great danger. Now you stop right there and you have a picture of Jesus in his humanity. The one who created the rain clouds is getting rained on. Here is God making himself vulnerable. Here is God experiencing life from our point of view. I mean, think about it, that Jesus could fall asleep under these kind of conditions. With this kind of storm going on, what does that tell you? <laughs> he must have been tired. I mean, really tired. You see, when Jesus came to this world, he didn't just appear to be a man. He didn't put on some kind of disguise and just pretend to be like one of us. No, no, no. He was human through and through. And anybody who spent any kind of time with him would tell you that. Do you remember that day, Mark chapter 3, when the family of Jesus, his mother and all his brothers and sisters, they come to get him because they're worried about Jesus. I mean, they genuinely think he's lost his sanity. And why did they think that? Because the Bible says they had learned that he's not eating. He is so busy helping the crowds. It's been the longest time since he's taken time to sit down and eat. And if you're a human being, you can't do that. You can't function like that. You need that fuel. You need that food to keep you going. See, here are these people who for 30 years... They've been right side by side with Jesus. I mean, for 30 years, they've stayed together in the same house. For 30 years, they've worked together, played games together. They've told jokes and laughed with each other. They know Jesus through and through. And yet, though at times his own family doubted the Messiah, I don't know about that. But the one thing they never doubted was his humanity. Jesus was a real person with a real body. They had real needs, and one of those needs you need to eat. You can't go skipping meals and expect to stay healthy. So the concern that his family has for him is genuine, and the reason for that concern is because they recognize Jesus is human. Well, here's another display of that humanity. Here's Jesus physically hitting the wall. I mean, so exhausted, so fatigued, that even though this major storm's going on, he can't stay awake. He falls asleep. Now, why is that so significant to know? Well, the Bible teaches us in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 8 it says, And Jesus learned obedience from what he suffered. You think, well, wait a minute. Jesus learned something? Uh, David, I, I thought Jesus was God. He is. Well, if he's God, is he not omniscient? Yeah, he, he, he knows everything. He knows it all. Well, if he knows it all, how could he learn something? Because knowledge comes in two ways. Information. What we get in our mind, we see, we observe, oh, I get it, you understand. But knowledge also comes through experience, what you get in your heart, because you actually lived through it. Now you appreciate it in a way you didn't before. You see, while Jesus was in heaven, he could fully and totally explain the concept of obedience. He could give you all 15 of the dictionary definitions of what it really means to obey. But when he came to this world and for 33 years he walked the ground and he got weak because he was hungry. He got tired and he fell asleep. When at times he got bullied and persecuted. When at times even members of his own family, even some of his very best friends betrayed and rejected him. In every one of those agonizing moments he was learning something. Learning something about obedience. Learning it from the angle of personal experience. And now because of that human experience, Jesus would understand obedience in a whole 
new way. And that's why back in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15, the Bible says, and Jesus is able to sympathize with us. When we feel weak, when we struggle, he knows exactly how we feel because he's been through those same struggles himself. Think of it like this. Here's a man, he's a, a doctor, a medical doctor, and his specialty is the field of obstetrics. He delivers babies. In fact, he's written a textbook on this subject, a textbook that is just highly regarded by all of his peers. So this man is an expert in his field. But because he's a man and not a woman, this doctor can never say to any of his female patients as they're lying on the bed going through the pains of labor, hey, I know how you feel. <laughs> he can't say that. He's never had that experience. But when your OBGYN is a woman who herself has had several babies, she can say to that young lady who's about to give birth to her very first child, say, hey, I know how scary this can be. And suddenly her words make a huge impact. They bring in an enormous amount of comfort because here's a doctor who's speaking from the heart. She has been there herself. That's how Jesus is able to relate to us. He's been on this side of the story too. But that's not enough to know. It's not enough to know that Jesus is human. You also need to recognize he is also divine. I mean, it's wonderful to know that Jesus can sympathize with us when we're having problems. Hey, he knows exactly how we feel. Man, that just means the world to me. But I also need to know, but does Jesus have the power to solve those problems? And the answer is yes, because not only is he human, he is also at the very same time divine, fully man, fully God. Watch verse 24. As they're fighting the storm and recognizing things are not going well, the disciples decide to go to the back of the boat. <laughs> we need Jesus. So they went and they woke him up saying, Master, Master. Now, anytime in the Bible you have a name or a title like this and it's being repeated, the Bible's trying to tell you something. It's communicating that there's not just words being spoken here. A lot of emotion is now being displayed. Do you remember that day when Jesus is in the home of Mary and Martha and Martha's getting really upset because her sister's not helping her out in the kitchen? And you remember how Jesus addressed her? Martha, Martha. And in repeating the name, the Bible's letting us know just by the very tone of his voice. It's not just how he said the name, but the way in which he said that name with a tenderness, with a compassion, with a gentleness, with the very tone of his voice. He's beginning to calm Martha down. Or how about in our Read Scripture app? We're, as a church, trying to read through the Bible this year. And this past week, we've been reading out the book of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 3, you read about Moses and his encounter with God at the burning bush. Remember that day he's out there in the desert watching the sheep, and all of a sudden he knows this little bush, and it's on fire, and yet the bush isn't being burned up. Man, I've never seen anything like that before. So forget about the sheep. And the Bible says, and Moses turned aside to take a closer look. Hey, i got to check this out. And seeing now that he has Moses' interest, God calls out to him, Moses, Moses. That's significant. In a moment, he's about to tell Moses, you're going to have to take off your shoes because you're standing on holy ground. This is an awesome moment that he has with God. But more than awesome, it's intimate and personal, too. Just one-on-one, -on -one. Moses, nobody else. I just, I just want to talk to you right now. And just the very way he speaks to him, Moses, Moses, there's a lot of feeling. There's a lot of emotion. It's a very special, very personal encounter with God. Well, so it is here. Many of these disciples, they're professionals, fishermen. They know this lake inside and out, and they recognize with this kind of a storm, our very lives are at risk. So when they come to the back of the boat, they're not just talking to Jesus. They're crying out from their hearts with loud voices and lots of feeling. Master, Master, you got to do something. And you got to do it now. If you don't do anything, we're going to drown. 
And watch the response of Jesus. Verse 24, Master, Master, we're going to drown. And immediately he gets up. See, Jesus really cares about these. I mean, he really cares about them. So he got up and he speaks to the storm. He rebuked the wind. He rebuked the raging water. Raging water and the storm listens. Storm subsided and all was calm. I mean, immediately everything stops. Instantly everything becomes silent and calm. Of course, the disciples are, whoa, what just happened? What did we just witness? And to help them process that, Jesus turns and begins to talk to them. Hey, fellas, I want you to appreciate what, just, what you just saw, what you just witnessed. And so he starts off with a question. Verse 25, where's your faith? Wow, what a great question. There's a question every one of us need to be asking ourselves every single day, because every day you display faith. Every day you show your belief in something. Every day you're counting on something. Whether it's the money you put in the bank or the pills you swallow each day to help regulate your blood pressure or the bridge that you drive across every morning on your way to work or the friends that you talk to and share your deepest, darkest secrets with. Every day you're putting your faith in something. But are you putting your faith in the right place and the right kind of people? See, the Bible's teaching here you're not safe. You're not really safe until you learn. And I mean it is a learning process until you learn how to put your faith Jesus. Well, watch the reaction of the disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, who is this? Hey, we spent a lot of time with Jesus. I, th I thought I knew who he was, but now I'm wondering, who is this? Again, a great question. And there's a question sooner or later every one of us is going to have to find an answer to. Who is Jesus to you? Man, he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. The winds and the water obey Jesus, but do we? I mean, when Jesus speaks, even the winds and the waters, they sit up and take notice. They sit up and listen. They pay attention to Jesus. But do we pay attention to Jesus? Now, I want to take this deeper because there's something going on here that is so significant that you might not even notice it unless you take this scripture and compare it to another one, a scripture we find back in the Old Testament. You go back in the Old Testament, and you come to this little book of Jonah. And if you'll take Jonah chapter 1 and lay it right next to Luke chapter 8, and then you begin line by line. Just notice all the similarities. Jonah chapter 1, Jonah's in a boat. Luke chapter 8, Jesus is in a boat too. And as they're riding in this boat, both Jonah and Jesus, they encounter a storm. And no ordinary storm. In both cases, Jonah and Luke, both cases they encounter a major storm. A life-threatening storm. And in both cases, we observe that it's not just Jonah and Jesus in that boat. There's all kinds of other passengers in that boat with Jonah and all kinds of passengers in this boat with Jesus. And as they're going through the storm, everybody is terrified. Everybody except Jonah and Jesus. Because in both cases, Jonah and Jesus are sleeping. So as everybody's fighting for their lives and doing their very best to keep the boat afloat, they're getting kind of annoyed, a little upset. How can you sleep at a moment like this? Do you not care? And they're so upset, they go and wake Jonah up, and they go and they wake Jesus up. And that's when the miracle happens. Both cases, Jonah chapter 1, Luke chapter 8, in a miraculous way, suddenly the storm. It stopped. And in both cases, the reaction of the people is the same. The passengers in the boat there in Jonah chapter 1, the passengers here in Luke chapter 8, as soon as the storm has stopped, they're more terrified after the storm is calm than before the storm stopped. And why? Because in both cases, their hearts are literally filled with the fear of the Lord. <laughs> Only God could have done something like this, but did you just see what God did? Wow! How awesome is our God. I mean, it's just so fascinating to line by line to just see all these similarities until you get to this point. You notice an exception, and it's a big exception. See, Jonah chapter 1, in order for the storm to stop, Jonah has to be thrown off the boat. 
he's thrown into the water so that everybody else in the boat can be saved. In a sense, the life of Jonah is sacrificed to satisfy the anger of God. Because right now, at that point, Jonah chapter 1, God is really angry with his prophet, and rightfully so. So the life of Jonah is sacrificed to satisfy the anger of God and to spare everybody else in that boat from God's judgment. But Luke chapter 8, Jesus stays in the boat. And you're thinking, well, that's kind of, there's been all these similarities. And now this difference, is there really a difference between the story of Jonah and the story of Jesus? And the more you think about it, the more you're like, no, no, there's not. Because if you'll read on in the book of Luke, you get to the end of the book and you see Jesus stepping into the greatest storm of all when he willingly allows himself to be placed on a cross. And he is there on the cross so that we can be spared from the judgment of God. See, here's Jesus willingly jumping into the storm, the ultimate storm, what the Bible calls hell. And he is there on the cross, literally going through hell. He is there so we don't have to go there, so we don't have to go to hell. He is there on the cross so that we can be saved. Now, you step back and you look at all this and say, wow, that's that's fascinating. That's really interesting. But is it convicting? See, most of us here, we've read this scripture many, many times. We are really familiar with the story. Yeah, I know this. You know, I always enjoy reading it. That's it. I got the facts. I got the information up here. But has the truth that we have learned here about Jesus, has this truth ever actually touched our souls and changed our lives? Here's what I'm getting at. One day, or this little boy goes to school day after day. And as he's going to school, he's trying to learn some information. You know, uh, two minus one equals one. Two, take away one, equals one. And he just goes over and over until finally that fact, that piece of information becomes etched on his brain. I got it. I know. I know the equation. Then one day, his mother puts two gummy bears in his hand. And accidentally, he drops one of the gummy bears, and it goes rolling down the drain. And he'll never retrieve it again. And all of a sudden, that math lesson they learned at school has taken on a whole new reality for him. All of a sudden, that equation, two minus one, two minus one, it's not just a fact that he learned out of a book. Now it's a disappointing reality that he feels in his heart. Or you get in the internet to take a look at some pictures of the Grand Canyon, and you're, whoa, you're impressed. Wow, what a place. But then one day, you actually get a chance to go visit the site for yourself, to see it with your own eyes. And while you're there, you take the time. You actually take the time to hike down to the bottom of the canyon. Then you take the time to climb back up. And you've even got a scrape on your knee to prove that you actually did. Suddenly, the truth about the Grand Canyon has taken on a whole new reality for you. Suddenly, the awesome truth about the Grand Canyon has touched your soul in a way those pictures on the Internet never John 3.16, the Bible says, For God so loved the world, he gave, gave his one and only son, Jesus. And he gave him this way. Jesus died on the cross so he could take away all our sin, and he rose from the dead so we could receive the gift of eternal life. And think, wow, that's wonderful, awesome. It's the most glorious news that has ever been shared with the world. And you're right. But what I want to know is this, when and where. Did that amazing fact, did that amazing truth about the love of God, when and where did that truth actually become real to you? When and where did that amazing truth about God's love actually touch your soul and change your life? I can't explain it because in a sense it's a mystery, but as a little boy, I I could feel God's love tugging on my heart. See, for the longest time, I knew the facts. I grew up in a Christian home. 
ever since I was a little baby, even as a baby, I was going to church all the time, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, other times, well, and I loved it. I mean, I knew the story of Jesus inside and out. I knew it up here, but not down here. And now as I look back, I realize how God began to bring about the change. It was prayers, the prayers of my parents, the prayers of my grandparents, the prayers of Sunday school teachers, the prayers of youth sponsors. There were all kinds of people watching out for me, really cared about me, and they were praying for me all the time. And because of those prayers, God's Holy Spirit went to work on the inside of me to take all this information and develop it into a conviction, a conviction that I could not ignore. Didn't happen all at once, nothing dramatic like that. This happened over a long period of time. But one day, the day, the day after my eighth birthday, way back there in 1963, I at last knew there was a burning in my heart, and I knew I had to make a response. Dad couldn't do it for me. Mom couldn't do it for me. None of my friends, I had to make a response. Much like the disciples here in the scripture, Master, Master, please don't let me drive. Please, Jesus, don't let me die in my sin. So on a Sunday evening, there in the tiny town of Bridgeport, Illinois, at the end of the evening service, I came forward as nervous as I could be. I mean, very shy, very bashful, still am, but very shy, very bashful, eight-year-old boy. I mean, if you were looking on the outside, you wouldn't have noticed anything impressive. I would just, and all these people, but I couldn't stay in the pew. On the inside, there was a pounding in my heart, a conviction. I knew what I needed to do. I had to go meet Jesus. So I walked in front of all those people, made my public confession of faith, and that night I stepped down in the waters of baptism where I just surrendered my life to him. And all of a sudden, God's love wasn't just a piece of information out there. Now John 3.16 had become my story too. What I want to know is when and where did the love of God capture, I mean really capture your life. When and where did the love of God actually touch your soul and change the course of your life? Let's pray. God, what we've been reading here today is no fairy tale. It's real. It really happened. And it didn't just happen 2,000 years ago. It can happen again today. And because I believe that, God, that's why I'm praying today. I'm, I'm thinking about people right now who are going through a storm, a really bad storm. I think about Liz Dale. I think about Carla May. I think about a lot of other people I know who financially are in a storm, maritally, in their marriage, they're in a storm. All kinds of other people who right now are just being swamped. Their boat, their life being swamped with all kinds of trouble. And God, they're in a storm that's too much for them to handle. But God, it's not too much for you. You've proven that. So God, today I ask two things. Number one, I want you to do for them what you did for these 12 disciples here in Luke chapter 8. Number one, let them know you're in the boat. They're not alone. God, give them that peace. That peace that passes all understanding. The peace that only you can provide. The peace of knowing you're in the boat and you will take care. And then number two, God, I'm asking you, you who commanded the winds and the water, take command of this storm and bring it to an end. Let this be a day of victory. God, let this be a day when they come awake again, alive to you. God, let this be a day when you make them well again. God, I also think about people who are sitting here right now who've got questions about Jesus, honest doubts. 
the answers, the understanding's not fully there yet, and I understand that, I get that, but God, answer those questions. Bring, address those doubts. May your Holy Spirit begin to work on the inside and take the truth of your word and apply it to their lives, and God, do it in a way that connects with them. Every one of us has a unique personality. We're all wired up differently. We all have different learning styles. You know that. So speak in a way that resonates with them. And may your Holy Spirit bring that understanding in their mind and that conviction in their heart where they want to. In fact, they know they just got to make a response to Jesus so they can experience the blessing of claiming Jesus as their Savior and their Lord. God, I pray for that blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.